Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And we are coming to you on Sunday night after one of the worst Suns playoff games of this entire run that they've had to the finals. Um, they lost game three, 120 to 100 on the road. Uh, and this was kind of their first taste of a really hostile playoff environment because, you know, you look at the Lakers, they didn't have full capacity crowds. The Nuggets were kind of... Uh, taken out of it by the fact that the Suns were just a superior team and everyone knew it was pretty much over and the Clippers who, you know, it's, it's the Clippers, you know, <laughs> they don't, you know, it was, it was kind of loud, I guess, but not really. It feels like Suns fans infiltrated Denver. They infiltrated LA this series in Milwaukee. You could definitely hear some Suns fans cheering on their team, but Milwaukee's kind of the first hostile playoff environment that they experienced. And um, whether it was due to that, whether it was just due to the Bucks being better, um, you know, there were a lot of things that went into this game three loss, but we're going to get into all of those. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of reasons why we shouldn't be panicking. And obviously some of them are pretty out in the open. We don't have to dig too deep on some of them, but um, we'll talk about the Giannis problem that the Suns currently have after he went off for another 40 plus performance. Uh, we'll touch on a couple of points of emphasis for game four. And then to wrap up with our latest G rated segment, we will be talking about Black Widow, which is Marvel's latest uh, feature film. We haven't had a Marvel movie in a long time, so it was nice to be able to go to the theaters this weekend take a break from some sun stuff for a little bit and, and just watch a movie. Um, so we'll be diving into whether or not that was any good. Um, but first of all, let's cover the reasons that we don't need to panic about the suns just yet. Um, and the, there was, you know, a couple of obvious ones, the most glaring of which in game three was Devin Booker finished with 10 points and shot three of 14 from the field. He didn't even really play in that fourth quarter. I don't see any of that happening again. You know, Devin Booker hasn't shot the ball well recently. If you take a look back at his last nine games since the conference finals started, he's only shooting 38% from the floor and 31% from three. Um, but he's also been playing great defense and he's been getting to the foul line six and a half times in that span to kind of make up for some of those things. Um, that wasn't really there in game three. This might have been Devin. I mean, this was Devin Booker's worst playoff game that we've seen from him so far. He's been in a little bit of a shooting rut lately. Um, if you just go back to the last nine games since the conference final started, but Devin Booker's too good to be held down for that long. He's due for a breakout game. We've seen him have breakout games, you know, game two of this series. He got hot in a hurry just literally last game. Um, game one of the conference finals, he had that 40 point triple double. Like we know that Devin Booker is a great player. He's a great scorer. 10 points on three of 14 shooting. That's not Devin Booker. He will bust out of it. He will bounce back. Monty Williams said he believes he'll bounce back. And the last time he said that Devin Booker went off to close out the Lakers over those last two or three games. So, you know, Devin Booker is the reason the Suns are here. He's a huge part of their success. 
you have to believe that he will shake off whatever shooting woes he's had recently and especially what he showed in game three. Um, another thing, DeAndre Ayton's four fouls totally changed the dynamic of that game. And, you know, I know a lot of people want to blame Scott Foster for that. Um, this game wasn't on Scott Foster. You look at the Sun shot like 29% from three. They got outscored in the paint. They gave up 20 second chance points. Like there are plenty of reasons the Suns lost this game. And obviously the dynamic of the game shifted when Aiton picked up his fourth foul and had to come out. Um, the Suns went ultra small at that point because they kind of had to. They didn't, you know, the Frank Kaminsky minutes were terrible. I think he was a minus 12 in like 14 minutes uh, in game three. So they went ultra small and the Bucks punished them for it, you know, and that's where the quarter changed. They ended the third quarter on a 16-0 run. And this was after they closed the second quarter on a 30-9 run. So the Suns had gotten it close um, and Aiton's fourth foul obviously hurt. But, you know, fouls are going to happen. They're going to happen, especially when Giannis is attempting so many of his shots around the basket. Um, Aiton and Monty are going to go back. They're going to look at the tape. They're going to figure out ways that they can avoid some of those fouls because DeAndre Ayton has been able to avoid foul trouble for the better part of this year with his verticality. So that's really going to come into play, but you know, I don't, even if, you know, whether you want to blame this game on the officiating or not, either way, it's good news that the Suns got their Scott Foster game out of the way. They played like crap everywhere else. So it might as well have been a Scott Foster game on top of that to get all those things out of the way in one road game, because I don't think you can blame Scott Foster for this one. The Suns lost this game and got pulverized in, in way too many ways to blame this on the officiating or, or one phantom foul call on DeAndre Ayton. Um, because most of his fouls were fouls on the night. I think there were maybe one or two that were a little dicey, but that's going to happen in a playoff environment, especially with a guy like Giannis that forces the issue around the basket. So you have to be prepared for that, but you also have to think that DeAndre Ayton, who has been so good about staying out of foul trouble, will be better in game four and have a kind of bounce back performance on the defensive end of the floor. He was great on the offensive end. Um, but on the defensive end of the floor, you have to think he'll be able to avoid foul trouble a little bit better in game four, especially after Monty publicly complained about it. And word to the wise, if you ever see a coach complaining about the foul discrepancy, especially one like Monty, who said, like, I don't want to get into the officiating, but and then drops, you know, the fact that Giannis had more free throws in their entire team. He's doing it for a reason. He's He's letting it be known that like, hey. Let's let's dial the officiating back in in the other direction, because that's what Mike Budenholzer did after game one. And everyone, you know, hammered from the Suns, hammered him for saying that. But look what it's gotten them the last few games. It's gotten them a little bit more favorable calls on the whistle. So here's Monty Williams pushing back. It's a game within a game. You get used to coaches doing that. I don't think Monty thinks that the reason that they lost this game was because of the officiating. Like, let's think a little bit deeper here with some of these comments. Um, again, I mentioned another reason not to panic. This was their first time playing in a truly hostile road environment. Not that the fans were unruly or, you know, saying awful things or anything like that, but like this was the best road crowd that they've had to contend with during this playoff run. And I think that matters a little bit. I don't think it is the reason that Devin Booker shot three for 14 or why they got pulverized, but role players play better at home. And that's what we saw from the Bucks role players in game three. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you hope that the better team wins out because the Suns are the better team in this series. Um, so going into game four, you hope that 
that rises to the top over all this other stuff that we saw in game three. Um, but they're still up 2-1 in the series. They have home court advantage the rest of the way, and they have an opportunity to steal one on the road soon, which is the objective in Milwaukee. If you steal one out of two games on the road, you are still in position to close out in game five and give yourself three more chances at it at worst. So, you know, job's not done. Obviously, going up 2-0, they were feeling good. Game three, the Bucks were desperate, and the Suns didn't match that. And so now they have a series, and now I think that they will respond in game four, which another reason we shouldn't be panicking about the Suns is they've been really good about responding to losses all season long and all playoffs long. They've only lost consecutive games four times this season and only once in the playoffs. So that means they've only had four losing streaks of any kind this entire season. That is a damn good team that hates losing. They've talked about it all season long, how – they have a, a team of sore losers. Like they, they stew on it. They think about it. They watch the film, they internalize it and they respond the next time out. Um, you know, they're just notoriously good at bouncing back after losses. And if you don't believe me, just look at the playoffs. They've, they are one in three in game threes. The only game three that they've won in the playoffs was the Denver series when they swept, but they're three and zero in game fours. So that tells you that even though they've lost three game threes, they bounced back to win game four uh, both times that, that it's happened, that they've lost the game three. So, you know, we'll see what happens in game four. They have still have a job to do. The Bucks prove that they're a resilient group as well. You know, they, they got down six in that second quarter and then responded with that 30 to nine run to close the second. So this is a good team. This is the biggest test that the Suns have obviously faced to this point. Um, and it's only fitting that it would come on this final stage. But, you know, this is what champions are made of. And they've proven that they have what it takes to win a title. Now that's going to be put to the test again. And we'll see how they respond. They've responded each time so far. So it's only right to keep the faith in them that they will respond yet again, even against this very good Bucks team that has that will have home court advantage in game four. Um, you know, and we should also point out the Sun shot nine for 31 from three in game three. Um, and if you don't include Jay Crowder, they shot three for 24, which is just terrible. All of their sons besides Jay Crowder shot three for 24 from long range, which is terrible. Um, and that's coming off a performance where they shot 20 for 40 from three point range. So, um, it is a make or miss league. It is the Suns had good quality shots in game three and, and missed quite a few of them. So it's one of those things where they need to bounce back in game four and uh, their shooting hasn't been the most reliable in this playoff run for the most part, but they're still winning games. They're finding ways to win games. So if they have a even average shooting night from three in game four, they'll be in much better shape. Um, we talked about how Devin Booker's do, but also the Suns defense should be better than we saw in game three. Um, you know, the offense didn't really make the Bucks rotate much. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but this is a team whose offense thrives on its defense. You know, they turn turnovers into fast break opportunities. They turn defensive stops into buckets. Like they, their offense fuels itself from getting defensive stops. And they weren't getting a lot of those in game three. You know, the, the Bucks were just getting whatever they wanted, points in the paint. They were getting three pointers. Uh, Giannis was just a force. He was getting to the line. He got to the line 17 times. Um, which as money noted was more than the Suns 16, but that's what happens when the majority of your attempts come from right around the basket um, in the thick of things. You know, the Suns took a 
lot of jump shots. They didn't get to the basket that much, and, and that was the result. So the Suns' defense has to be better than it was in game three. Um, avoiding foul trouble is a big part of it, obviously. Going small really hurt them, even though they had to in that circumstance, and it was working for a little bit until Giannis just started punishing them and they had to ride that, that small unit for too long. So those are some reasons not to panic, but the big one that everyone is worried about is what to do with Giannis because the Suns have a real Giannis problem. So for the series, for these first three games, Giannis is averaging 34 points, 14 rebounds, almost five assists, 1.3 steals, 1.3 blocks. He's shooting nearly 63% from the field. Um, and over the last two games, he's dropped back-to-back 40-point, 10-rebound games, uh, joining Shaq as the only players in finals history to do that in back-to-back finals games. Um, he's averaging 41.5 points, 12.5 rebounds, 5 assists, 1.5 blocks, 1 steal, and he's shooting 64% from the field. So he's been absolutely unstoppable. And this is nothing new for Suns fans because in the two regular season meetings, he averaged 40 against the Suns as well. So game one, you could tell he was still kind of shaking things off. He wasn't fully himself. Game two, he's looked a lot more like himself, which is absurd because this guy just hyperextended his knee like a week and a half ago, and he already looks this incredible. So hats off to the Greek freak. He's having a fantastic series, and the Suns don't have a lot of answers for him right now. So it bears the question, like, what can they do? What can they do about a guy that made more field goals within five feet in game three than the entire Suns did? You know, Giannis made 14 shots within five feet of the basket. Suns made 13 as a team. Um, You know, he actually had 24 points in the restricted area on 12 of 12 shooting. Um, And he tied LeBron James in 2017 and Shaq in 2004 as the most points in the restricted area in a finals game over the last 25 years. So um, he's on a tear. He's been incredible. Um, And Chris Paul said after the game, you know, we have to build a wall to better protect DeAndre Ayton. Something Arizona people on the red side of the state would probably love. We have to build a wall to keep Giannis out of the paint um, to better protect DeAndre Ayton, show him some body, show him some hands on his way to the basket so it's not just Ayton on an island trying to stop this guy that's already getting a full head of steam towards the basket. Um, You know, like... Aiton has to have one of his best Aiton games in game four. Like he's done it against Anthony Davis. He's done it against Nikola Jokic, where he's legitimately outplayed all-star, all-NBA centers, big men. Um, Now he has to do it against someone who's a lot more physical and who will force the issue because Giannis's whole thing is getting to the basket. Um, You know, he's got the spin move. He's got, he's got a couple of moves, but he doesn't have a lot of different, a lot of different moves. Um, So his whole thing is getting downhill, getting to the basket, and it's impossible to stop for most players. DeAndre Aiden is not most players. He's one of the few guys that can check him. But as we saw in game three, if he gets in foul trouble, the Suns are in a lot of trouble because they don't have Dario Saric out there to put another big body out there. Frank Kaminsky is seven feet, but he plays like he's, you know, six, three. Um, and Torrey Craig going small, you can try that. And the Suns did try that. And you could ride it out for a few minutes. But if you have to ride it for too long, what's going to happen is what we saw in game three. Mike Budenholzer is going to put Brooke Lopez out there. He's going to put Bobby Portis out there. He's going to have Giannis out there. And the Bucks are just going to crush the Suns on the offensive glass. So it's one of those things where 
DeAndre Ayton has to stay out of foul trouble. Um, and Monty alluded to checking the tape to see what's being called and what a proper defensive position will be. He mentioned that he doesn't know what a proper defensive position is for DeAndre Ayton right now, based on the way he's being whistled for some of these fouls. Um, again, that's a coach's posturing, like letting the league office know, like, hey, like dial it back on this area. Um, but, you know, DeAndre Ayton has done a good job of avoiding foul trouble all season long. Um, game three on Sunday night was only the 11th time all season that he's had five or more fouls in a game. Um, and I think it was the first time all postseason. So he's been really good in these playoffs about avoiding foul trouble, using his verticality, but still being physical. That's going to be put to the ultimate test because the Suns don't or the Suns don't have anybody else that can really check Giannis. Like Jay Crowder can put a body on him. He can make it difficult. He can be physical. But at the end of the day, Giannis just has the limbs. He can swim move like right through him, um, just run right around him. He, he just has that step, that first step that Jay really can't stick with. And Mikhail Bridges has the length and the defensive IQ, but nowhere near the length or the size or the strength to keep up with Giannis in that regard. Every time that Mikhail has been matched up on him, Giannis has posted him up and punished him. So it's one of those things where the, the Suns can form a wall when Aiton's on the court, but when he's not, that's when it gets really dicey. And so the Suns have to do a better job in game four of matching Aiton's minutes up with Giannis or a couple of minutes early, I think in the second half where, uh, Giannis, he went to the bench and Jay Crowder went to the bench, but DeAndre Ayton was still out there. So by the time Giannis came back in, he was able to go for longer and the Suns had to withstand some minutes with Frank Kaminsky uh, trying to body Giannis or Jay Crowder trying to body Giannis without Ayton on the back line. That's a risky proposition. So, um, you know, and, and hats off to Giannis. He notched his second 40 point, 10 rebound, five assist game of the finals. Um, and he joined LeBron James, who has five, Shaq, who has two, John Havlicek, who has two, and Jerry West, as who has two, as the only players in finals history to notch multiple 40-10-5 games. So he's been incredible. He's been dominant. Um, but, you know, the Suns' wings have to be ready to be physical with him, have to try to find ways to force him to shoot. Um Giannis making a lot of his free throws doesn't help. I think he's shooting like 68 or 69% from the foul line, which, you know, isn't great, but it's a lot better than what we're used to seeing from him. Um, they just got to find ways to keep him out of the paint and off the foul line because, you know, the nail in the coffin for game three was that 16-0 run. When Aiton was out with four fouls, the Suns went small. Um, and, you know, he really punished them a little bit. So at the end of the day, though, even DeAndre Aiden, like Aiden played a pretty good defensive game in game two. He wasn't in foul trouble, but Giannis still went off for 40 plus points. So honestly, for the Suns, the key is to focus on a few other key areas, a few other points of emphasis and, and some of the little things that they had taken care of through the first two games, but kind of fell by the wayside and went horribly wrong in game three. So as far as points of emphasis for the Suns are concerned, number one, keep the bucks off the glass. Like in game one, the Suns were out-rebounded 47 to 43, but they only gave up nine offensive rebounds and only three second chance points. They actually had more second chance points in game one. They had seven um, and they had six offensive rebounds. So they were only three behind in that department as well. In game two, they were out-rebounded 46 to 43. So even closer that time, they did give up 18 offensive rebounds, 
uh, and 23 second chance points, but they were able to counter that with 11 offensive rebounds of their own, leading to 19 second chance points. So they only lost a second chance points battle by four points, um, even though they got out-rebounded by seven on the offensive glass. So they were basically level with the Bucks in that regard. You're not going to beat the Bucks given the Suns' lack of size outside of Aiton and not having Sharich in this series. The, the Bucks are good at hitting the offensive glass. They've done it all playoffs long, but they kept it close. In game three, they were out-rebounded 47-36. to 36. They gave up 13 offensive rebounds and 20 second-chance points. And this time around, they only had two second-chance points themselves and six offensive rebounds. So they lost the offensive rebounding battle by seven. They lost the second-chance points battle by 18. And you can't do that against a team like the Bucks, especially on a night where they're hitting threes and the Suns aren't making anything. Um, and again, a lot of that traces back to that stretch in the third quarter where the Suns had to go small because Aiton was in foul trouble. Um, and that's, that's been the one glaring roster flaw of this incredible Suns roster is not having a backup big behind Sharich who can get rebounds, who can, you know, just have size and length and play like a big man, like no offense to Frank Kaminsky, but he's going to get pushed around in there. He's not going to get you a ton of rebounds. His value is more on the offensive end as kind of that connector that Monty Williams always calls him. So in game four and game three, Monty had said going in, that was going to be a point of emphasis for them. It has to be an even bigger one in game four, um, coupled with DeAndre Ayton staying out of foul trouble because obviously they, they need him to play 40 minutes or so uh, and be big on the glass like he has been. Another one, this is related, keep the Bucks out of the paint. Uh, the Suns actually won the points in the paint battle in game one, 44 to 42. Uh, in game two, the Bucks demolished the Suns in the points in the paint battle, 54 to 28, but the Suns made up for it by making 23s. In game three, they weren't making their threes and they got beat up in the points in the paint battle. Uh, they lost that 40, 54 to 40, uh, and they only shot nine of 31 from three, which is 29%. So if you're going to lose the points in the paint battle, you have to be hitting threes. They weren't doing that in game three. So in game four, they need to get back to game one status where they battled the Bucks in the paint and actually won the points in the paint battle, limited them to 42 points in the paint instead of the 54 that they've averaged over these last two games. They've got to dial that number back down a little bit because the Bucks are getting what they want around the basket. And that's mostly Giannis. Um, the other thing, this is simple, it's a make or miss league. So you got to make your threes, you know, in, in game one, the Suns only shot 11 for 34. That's 32% to the Bucks 16 for 36. That's 44%. But they did make 16 more free throws, which helped balance that out because the Suns kept getting to the foul line. And that was, that was a big difference in game one. In game two, they shot 20 for 40. That's 50% to the Bucks nine of 31. That's 29%. And they won that game pretty handily. Game three, they shot nine of 31, 29%, to the Bucks 14 of 36, which is 39%. So they lost by 15 points from the three-point line in game three, just like they did in game one. The only difference was they weren't getting to the foul line, they weren't keeping the Bucks out of the paint, and they weren't getting to the paint themselves very much. So, you know, just make threes. That's a big thing. Like, the Suns' whole deal was assembling a roster of three-point shooters to put around Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, all these guys, they just got to make threes because outside of Jay Crowder, the Suns, again, were three of 24 from three, which is terrible. This team is too good at shooting the three ball to do that. 
And some of that traces back to, you know, Mikhail Bridges kind of just totally disappeared after one of his best playoff games yet. He had 27 in game two, totally disappeared. He didn't even take his first shot of the night until like the last minute of the first half. So they need more out of Mikhail Bridges. Um, but this is a big one for the Bucks. You know, we've talked about how Giannis is going off, what they can try to do to stop him. But Giannis is going to get his. He's going to be good for 30 to 40 points a game the rest of this series. So the key for the Suns is to stop, you know, don't let the other guys get going. Because Drew Holiday in the first two games was averaging 13 and a half points, eight assists, and six rebounds. He was shooting 31% from the field and only had made one of his seven three-pointers. So they were doing a great job on Drew Holiday. He remembered how to shoot in game three. Uh, he had 21 points, nine assists, five rebounds. He shot eight of 14 from the field and made five of his 10 three-pointers, which was a killer because when the Suns were making that run with the small ball lineup, the Bucks neglected to get it to Giannis in the post a couple of times when he had a clear uh, advantage, but it didn't matter because Holiday hit something like two or three three-pointers in a row and he kept the Bucks out in front and prevented the Suns from really cutting into that lead. So that was a killer for the Suns. They have to be better in that regard. Again, Devin Booker has been really good defensively. He wasn't great in game three. Um, and part of that was Drew Holiday going off. Um, but, you know, even like Chris Middleton, he had 18 points on six of 14 shooting. Not a fantastic night, but it was enough to hurt the Suns. Bobby Portis had 11 points off the bench. Pat Connaughton made three of his five shots. Just like little things like that hurt on the road. Um, you know, when you're having your hands full trying to stop Giannis and, and you have these other guys that are chipping in. So you can expect that from a team going back home where they're comfortable in front of their home crowd. Uh, but it's something that the Suns will have to limit moving forward because you can't let Drew Holiday hurt you like that. If you do, this is going to, this series might go the distance. Um, Another thing, this starts defensively. This has to be a point of emphasis. I've already talked about how the Suns' offense feeds off of their defense. Um, but, you know, all of the little things, all the 50-50 balls, all the little things that the Suns normally pay attention to went the Bucks' way in game three. Um, you know, the Bucks won the transition battle 16-6 to in fast break points. Uh, the Suns took seven fewer shots and 10 fewer free throws. They only had 21 assists on 40 made field goals, uh, and their average is 24 per game. So they were down from what their norm is. Um, they also gave up 28 assists. The Bucks had 28 assists on 43 field goal makes, and their average is only 20 assists per game. So, you know, the ball was moving for the Bucks. They looked a lot better offensively. The Suns have to clamp down on some of that. And, that. and that involves being better on Giannis. Obviously, that's where it starts, being better from the point of attack on the perimeter. Um, but they just have to do a better job with, with making life difficult for Milwaukee on the defensive side of the floor again because they really didn't in game three. Um, you know, the Bucks making shots allows them to set their half-court defense, which is harder to score on. And the Suns missing shots allows the Bucks the chance to push the tempo and not have to score on the Suns half-court defense, which is pretty stingy. So they really need to just make some shots, stop missing so many shots, and, and limit the Bucks a little bit to shots so they can get into their more natural flow of playing up tempo, turning defensive stops into transition opportunities, and not having to face a half-court Bucks defense every time. You want to win that battle. Um, and the final one, and this will help with that, uh, taking better care of the ball. So in game three, the Suns committed 15 turnovers that led to 17 Milwaukee points. 
uh, and the Bucks only committed nine turnovers, leading to 10 Suns points. In the first two games, the Suns committed nine turnovers, leading to 10 Bucks points, and 13 turnovers, leading to 16 Bucks points. Um, and they, they kind of won that battle because the Bucks committed 14 turnovers and nine turnovers, leading to 16 Suns points and 15 Suns points. So they were outscoring them in this regard in terms of points off of turnovers and, and limiting turnovers. They were bad in that regard in game three. So they have to take better care of the ball as well, especially on some of those areas where they were looking to put together runs and then would commit a costly turnover um, that would swing momentum right back to the home team. So got to take care of the ball on the road. Jay Crowder said it after game three, a lot of the 50, 50 balls, a lot of the 50, 50 plays that could go either way went Milwaukee's game and on the road, you have to, you have to win those battles. So uh, that's going to do it for Suns Talk for today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So to close, we are going to talk about Marvel's Black Widow, which just came out uh, on Friday and uh, starring Scarlett Johansson. It's the first standalone Black Widow movie. She's been in all kinds of movies dating back to was it Iron Man, Iron Man 2 way back in the day. So she's been a fixture in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, finally gets her own standalone movie. Um, and it's the first Marvel movie that we've had in two years, maybe a little bit less than two years, but it's been a long time. There wasn't anything in the pandemic. Thankfully, we've been getting plenty of good Marvel content on Disney Plus with those TV shows. But, uh, you know, it was nice to go to a theater and watch a Marvel movie again, feel a little bit closer to the norm again. Um, the thing is, Black Widow is good, but not great. Like it, it, I was entertained. I enjoyed it. Um, but it's nowhere near Marvel's top tier. So basically the premise is it's set between the events of uh, Captain America Civil War and Avengers Infinity War. And, uh, you know, Captain America's on the run at this point. Scarlett Johansson or Black Widow is on the run as well. And, uh, you know, she's just, she kind of comes into contact with her old life through her sister she finds out that, um, you know, the criminal warlord or whatever you want to call him that basically brainwashed her and all these other widows throughout the world into doing his bidding, killing people, being these, these Russian spies, um, is still alive. He's still alive. He's still out there. She thought she had killed him, but uh, he's still out there. So she teams up with her sister and eventually her quote unquote father and her quote unquote mother who were actually just, you know, she started off with them as a family. They were all Russian sleepers in America. So they had to pretend to be a family, even though they weren't actually a family. So they're basically her family, but it was all kind of fake. Um, so they kind of navigate through that a little bit. Um, her sisters played by Florence Pugh, who um, is great as comedic relief. She's actually one of the bright spots of the movie, her and David Harbour, who's the father figure um what was his name the crimson dawn or i think that's what they make fun of him but anyway he he was like the russian super soldier basically but he kind of got fat in prison um and there's some great comedic bits with her sister who makes fun of her for like always making the superhero landing and um her father figure who is like so proud of how his daughters are these killer assassins um so they, they, there were some bright spots. There were some, some funny parts. Um, and Rachel Weiss, who plays the mom, she just 
doesn't age for some reason, but she was great as the mom as well. Um, but I didn't really feel like I learned anything new about Black Widow's character in terms of like contextualizing her her character and her death in Avengers Endgame. Like I, I didn't I didn't feel like it added anything new to the character. It was just kind of like, okay, here's one thing that you know Black Widow did in between these two movies that you never really saw. Like, I feel like that's what it was. And it was entertaining, don't get me wrong. Like, some of the action was good. I feel like <laughs> some of it bordered on, like, Fast and the Furious levels of ridiculousness. Um, and Marvel kind of gets in the bad habit with some of its action scenes of, like, getting too close in. So it's just, like, a shaky camera and you don't really know what's going on. And it's, like, for effect because the choreography isn't really there. Um, but some of the action was pretty good. Um, I, I just didn't feel like you know, after she dies in Endgame, you kind of hope that this standalone movie will contextualize her a little bit better in terms of the sacrifice that she made and um, the decisions she made in that movie and just, you know, bringing more life to the character. And it was just kind of more the same. Um, you know, I guess the one thing that you could say would be like her character, you thought that her ledger was dripping with red is what they say. Basically, she's killed a lot of people. Um, and she finds out that, in fact, the little girl that she thought she had killed to get to this crime lord didn't actually die. Um, in some ways, it was kind of worse because the little girl, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, um, but the little girl winds up being the villain in that movie. So it's uh, it's kind of worse somehow than if the little girl had sort of died. But, um, you know, they they... The good thing about Black Widow that I liked about her character was that she had this like haunted negative past where she did these awful things and then became a hero. Um, and I thought this movie was going to, you know, have her trying to come to terms with that a little bit more. But instead, they just kind of totally whitewashed those awful things that she did by saying like, basically, oh, she didn't actually kill the little girl, like the little girl survived and she turned out to be a supervillain. But then she freed her from that too. Um, so it was just kind of, it kind of undid something that was cool about Black Widow's character was that she had a fucked up past. She had done horrible things and now she was trying to do good things to make up for that. And that, that conflict was interesting to me. So to just kind of take that away and be like, oh, just kidding. Like you have killed people, but this one that really haunted you from your past is one murder that you thought you committed uh, for the greater good you actually didn't she's alive and it's okay and now you get a chance to free her like I just didn't like that approach um and I didn't really like just Taskmaster's uh, that's the villain's name Taskmaster's origin story as far as that being the little girl all grown up with like a chip in her brain um and it never really explained how the chip helps her mirror everyone's moves like learn their moves and mimic them um so I don't know. It, that, that was just kind of weird to me. I Because like in the comics, Taskmaster, Taskmaster is a really cool villain. Um, and that's basically his superpower is like a super assassin who can, he's kind of, um, there's this one, there's this one villain in Batman. I forgot what his name is, but he's also Deathstroke. That's who it is. He can like watch your moves and mirror them. Um, just a super assassin. He's basically Marvel's version of Deathstroke. And he's 
I mean, that's a really cool villain. I don't even care that it was a, like, it's not about whether it was a male or a female to me. It's just like the kind of lame twist of like, bum, bum, bum. Like the, the big villain this whole time was the person that you thought you killed, but she's all grown up and she hates you for it. Like it was, but actually she's brainwashed. Like it was just a very predictable and kind of harebrained twist. Like there wasn't a lot of thought put into it. Um, you know, when you see the mask, you're assuming that someone automatically, you're assuming that someone is, especially if they don't speak. Like if you put a character with such a cool mask and they don't speak for the whole movie, you're going to assume that that character, when they reveal who they are, is going to be someone that's important to the storyline. Um, and it wound up being the most predictable character there. So that was kind of lame. I feel like Taskmaster would have been a cool villain on their own because Marvel needs more recurring villains that show up because they keep like killing them off. And it's like every time the villain is someone who is like related to one of the, the real bad guys behind the scenes, but guess what? They're redeemable. So we're going to save them. And then we're going to bring them back as a hero later on. We saw it with, I think ghost in Ant-Man and the Wasp too. We've seen it so many times. where like someone who's related to someone who was wronged by the heroes or is diametrically opposed to the heroes is actually the bad guy under the mask. Like it's not a compelling twist at this point anymore. We don't need to keep repeating that. Um, but that's just me. Maybe other people liked the taskmaster reveal. I didn't, I thought it was kind of predictable and it was just kind of like, we're doing this again, really? Like, do we have to do this? Can't we just create a compelling villain and give them their own character and bring them back? God forbid for future use. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, these are these are nitpicks, I think, because I still, like I said, I overall enjoyed the movie. It's entertaining as like a summer blockbuster and our first Marvel feature film in years. Um, but it kind of suffers from the same problem that I thought Captain Marvel had, which was like, okay, that was good, but was there anything about that movie that like, I'm gonna wanna come back and watch again? Or like anything that's truly memorable that stands out compared to other Marvel movies. And I actually liked Captain Marvel better than this movie um hopefully that doesn't turn people off because i know people weren't crazy about captain marvel i liked captain marvel um but you know is it the funniest marvel movie no black widow suffers from the same problem is it does it have the best action does it have anything that like really sets it apart as something that like when you think of marvel movies and you want to watch a marvel movie you're like yeah let's watch black widow for this reason i don't really know if there is a reason for black widow other than you know, like it's cool that we finally are getting standalone female superhero movies and Black Widows was long overdue. Um, but it sucks because the timing of that is unfortunate. If they had released this before Endgame, before she dies, I think it would have been a lot more compelling. Um, but since it's coming out years after Endgame and we already know what happens to her, it didn't really contextualize her decision or what happened to her in any meaningful way to me. Um, so I kind of expected more. I feel like we still don't know much more about Black Widow and, and what makes her, what made her so ruthless other than just some very short, like cliff notes, like, oh, I was brainwashed and didn't really get into any of that or her past very much um, other than kind of introducing her family. And, you know, early in, in Black Widow's appearances throughout the MCU, there were a lot of like cool spy sequences where she did really cool shit and that it made her mysterious, it made her cool, it made her, you know, this super dangerous spy. And in this movie, 
I just didn't really feel that same vibe. It wasn't really much of a spy movie, honestly. And I guess that's not the end of the world, but um, you know, it, it just kind of didn't deliver on what I was expecting it to. Maybe my expectations were high. I heard some people say that they went into it with low expectations and really liked it. So it's one of those things where maybe if you set your base expectations at a certain level, you'll go in and enjoy it. And I still enjoyed it either way. So for my final G rating, I'm going to give this a seven out of 10, which is good, not great territory. Um, I'll probably watch it again at some point. Like it's not bad, but it's just not something that I'm going to be rushing back to rewatch like I was with a lot of some of these other Marvel movies. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thank you all for listening. Please make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, write me a five-star review if you're enjoying this show. Uh, But until next time, this is Gerald Bourget signing off.